Midnight in Karachi with Mahvish Murad on Tour.com. My guest today is writer and comic Sami Shah, who shares a hometown with me, though he's joining me today from Melbourne, Australia. Sami's first book is the memoir I Migrant, which was shortlisted for the NSW Premier's Literary Award and the Russell Pride for Humor Writing. His second book is the urban fantasy Fireboy, set in Karachi, in a Karachi I know too well, about a young man who finds out there is much more to him than he had ever imagined. Sami, welcome to Midnight in Karachi. Thank you for having me. Now, Fireboy has been a long time coming. Tell me your elevator pitch for the book. Elevator pitch for the book is, um, it's a boy who discovers that he's half human, half jinn, and then has to f- stave off the end of the world using those abilities that he now has. Now tell me what it's really about. <laughs> what it's really about is, it's about uh, Karachi. At its heart, it's about basically one of the largest cities in the world in terms of population and the corruption and the crime and the, and the way people kind of make their lives over there. And it's about the, the mythology that used to scare us in Karachi when we were kids. It wasn't, we didn't grow up with vampires and werewolves and, and zombies. We grew up with jinns and churels and pichilperis and the creatures that people don't know about outside of our culture. And I kind of wanted them to discover those things and those, like a whole new menagerie of beasties, if you will. Yeah. Now, why Jinns and why Karachi? Why a comic book loving, fantasy reading teenager as a protagonist? Well, I, I had this thing where I grew up reading all these books, right? There, there's this these whole fantasy genre when I was growing up, and this, which still very much exists of that boy who discovers that he's half wizard or half god or half, you know, Greek god or whatever, and then he discovers the powers, then he joins a pantheon of creatures, and they have adventures. And those stories were always set in New York or London or these kind of places. And I love that. I love reading them as, as a child. It never bothered me that they weren't set in my city. Um, until I grew up and I kind of realized there's that gap there, that, that story that I want to read, which was the monsters and the, and the creatures and the mythology that I grew up with in the city that I knew and recognized. And maybe if I can give that to some boy kind of growing up now, he has more variety to choose from than just those Eurocentric, Western-centric kind of genre fiction stories. Sure, but now I think that's happening more and more, right? Are there... Though part of me wants to say, yes, it's happening a great deal. Now we're getting at this whole topic of diversity comes up. Right, absolutely. But then again, you need to remember that diversity doesn't mean necessarily having characters set or growing up in different parts of the world outside of, you know, sort of Eurocentric centers mm-hmm. of fantasy. Diversity also means reading stories by or from writers who are not part of that. Western yeah, which, uh, and that's and, and because that that also changes the story a lot. For example, right. there's you, you know the 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 kind of traditions of storytelling that I tried to bring to this while paying homage to the genres and stuff that I, I read as a kid. Or I also try to be somewhat faithful to the to the traditions I grew up with. You know, the kind of um, almost we don't have campfire stories in Pakistan. We have we, aunties and uncles. We have right. aunties and uncles telling us. We don't have campfires like, because it's hot. Right, exactly. <laughs> and secondly, and, when the electricity goes, really, you don't want a fire. Um, yeah, the last thing you need is just more heat. So, right. and, and the stories we traded were always like, you know, my auntie's uncle's cousin, this happened to him for sure. And it's always a gin. Yeah, yeah. And it's always, and it's not the kind of gin that, you know, people think of. People think of a genie when they think of a gin. They think of Aladdin, and, or, or we call it Aladdin, and his and his genie or they think of you know just a guy in a lamp granting three wishes with like a big curling beard and and a scimitar but the jinns we grew up with were scary 
they yeah. were they were figures that could change shape and the only way you knew what they were was because their eyes would be full of fire and they could and they possessed girls always there was a thing i remember all my girl cousins were told don't go under a tree at night um, at sunset with your hair open and and these are and these are things that would genuinely frighten the daylights out of us and i just kind of felt that i there is that aspect of diversity which is you know someone will write a story about um jinns or about about you know islamic mythology and it will always have a riff on um arabian nights right right it'll always be that except arabian nights wasn't that big a deal to us in pakistan we didn't i mean we read it as kids and aladdin and everything but you know that was again that's an arab thing and it all everything kind of gets smooshed together as oh the entire middle east and and arab culture and islamic culture is all arabian nights and everything else is irrelevant and like i want to show that you know there's every place has its own stories and its own mythology as well which is also linked to a larger religious mythology for example right right although part of part of the arabian nights uh, sort of insistence of of how it is part of our culture when you're saying that it wasn't such a big deal i think it's also partly because it just was something we grew up with stories of aladdin and sinbad there was no yeah. there was nothing exotic about this there was nothing amazing this is just the way it was Right, exactly. Um, it, it, it's those are the stories that we took for granted. Whereas, whereas when whenever I see diverse stories, for example, which is a writer in the West writing a story set in the Middle East or something, they always treat Ara- Arabian Nights as this amazing, amazing, magical, mystical thing, which is the template for all their tales. Um, and I just feel like that you, you know you're you're doing uh, injustice to all the other stories that have existed around that and beyond that and before that. Right. And it's interesting what you say about Jinns and Karachi because I'm always telling people how everyone you know in Karachi, I mean myself included, you included, every single person has their own version of a Jinn story. Yeah, um, absolutely. It's just one of those things. I mean, I don't know what the equivalent of that is for the West. I mean, does everyone in, you know, London have sort of a, a story, some sort of urban myth or some sort of urban legend that they all like is, is there anything connecting everyone in that sense the way it does for everyone in Pakistan. I can imagine they there probably must have be, but I don't a know what poltergeist story or something. Maybe. Does everyone have a poltergeist story? I mean, with jinns, it's literally yeah. every single person you ask will tell you, oh, hey, there was that one time my cousin or my neighbor or my, you know, someone. Yeah, or my house. Like, I, yeah. I was, I mean, I'm a stone-cold atheist. I'm, I'm a very, you know, I'm a non-believing person, but I believe in jinns still at, 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 at the dead of night. You know, I still think about this thing, one or two things that happened when I was a kid where where my friends and I are playing in the house and um, we used to have suitcases on the, on the roof, on the ceiling, sorry. And, you know, the suitcases started tumbling down just by themselves, came and landed flat in the middle of the staircase landing. And then after two minutes, started tumbling down again. And it's one of those things where it's, there's, there's, I'm sure, you know, the theory could be there's a mouse inside the suitcase or whatever, but, uh, or it's a gin. <laughs> and you just kind of go with those silly stories as a child and you kind of keep believing them quietly to yourself and as an adult. Just to clarify, when Sami says suitcases on the ceiling, he doesn't really mean ceiling. He means the parchati, which is kind of a high right. up cupboard, uh, like a little cabinet that's on top of your actual cupboard. So it is basically the ceiling. yes, basically. Yes. Sorry, yes. all sorts yes. of strange sounds and things happen in there. And the first thought always is, "Oh, it's just a gin." Um, yeah. But anyway, let's move on. Move on from that. Did you ever consider consider setting the story anywhere other than Karachi? Because I know of all people how the mm-hmm. city gets in claws and gets its claws in your psyche and it doesn't let go all right. karachiites have some sort of stockholm syndrome this is you know a fact for sure absolutely um <laughs> for me it was a thing of i actually the first draft of the story i had the characters kind of moving out of karachi to other parts of pakistan initially at least for a few days as part of the story 
And it just didn't work in... I know there's a certain pride that Karachiites have where they all, we almost think of ourselves as Karachiites first and Pakistanis second. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I know, I know people as in New York... As it should be, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I know people in New York who think that way. And I know people in every big city, people in Mumbai probably think that way. You know, where Mumbai first and then India second. And, and there is that kind of attitude there. And, and so for me, I just, I wasn't enjoying the writing of it the moment I'd leave Karachi. I, as long as my characters were in Karachi and, and the world I was describing was Karachi, I was happy and telling that story. And it seemed to come from a truer place. Um, I just didn't feel like I wanted to move out of there. Now, we had this conversation, you and I, sort of uh, much earlier when you were writing, I think, earlier draft of this book. Mm-hmm. It's been through many drafts. It's been yes. through many drafts. <laughs> One of the earlier drafts, let's put it this way. I remember talking to you about this, about world building. Is How do you work on world building when you're setting it in a world that is essentially yours? Do you still make an attempt to, for lack of a better word, describe the world a little more for readers who are unfamiliar with it? How mm-hmm. do you do that while not sounding like you're playing to some sort of gallery? Do you know what I mean? Right, absolutely. Um, there were, I had two worlds to develop in this, right? So the one is the world of the jinns, which is a, a, a later part of the book, and, and the main part is the world of Karachi itself. And I almost felt like I had to kind of... I, Initially, the first few drafts, I was introducing Karachi to readers as if it was Lothlorien or, or, you know, like an elven city or, or as in right. just an alien place. Um, well, because it I is was, to most people. That's right. It is. But then I kind of also had this realization that w- I've never been to New York or London right. or when I was a kid reading these things. No one took that time to kind of explain those cities to me. You just kind of fill in the, gla- the, the blanks because cities are still cities. We all know the, the generic details and, and, the, and you kind of fill in just tiny details that, that, you know, people can kind of color in around them. And so I had that thing where I, I started pairing back a lot of the description and trimming it down. And I, I noticed that when I'd give it to non-Karachiites to read, they wouldn't ask, oh, I don't get Karachi. I, it's, it's too alien for me. That wasn't a problem. That was my own insecurities, maybe, right. but not something that they were encountering. And so I kind of, that's when I started trimming it back, trimming it back and making it more practical, sticking to the more realistic and the more... Um, almost mundane aspects of the city that right. make their way into the description, but not going out of my way to describe the city. Um, and, I, and then I, I treated the, 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 you know, the alternate world the same way. And it, it kind of fit between um, how Karachi was appearing and how Kaf, which is where jinns live, according to Islamic mythology, where they live. And, and those descriptions seem to flow more naturally from one into the other. It's always a big debate for me, you know, this question of how much you should give away about a city, how much you should world build about an existing city, if it's one that basically, if you're, if you're hoping that your book is being published in the West or being read by a larger Western audience, and mm-hmm. let's not pretend that you don't want that because, you know, we're, yeah, absolutely. You're not, yeah, you've got a very small English um, readership in Pakistan, given the size, you know, population of the country, all that small doesn't necessarily mean small, but it is small mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And if you want to hit sort of the international um, press or publications or you know whatever it may be, then you do to some extent, I feel, perhaps need to create your city the way you would a fantasy world because in the mind of most people, most Western readers, is Karachi essentially just fantasy? Uh, right. What do they know about it? You and I grew up reading books set in London and New York and never having been there but being okay with it because we had this influx of information from media and television. and I mean, everything we knew about America, mm-hmm. we learned from, you know, 
80s sitcoms or bad movies that we got from pirated cassettes <laughs> or whatever right. it was, Absolutely. right? I mean, even now, having been to the States, I still form most of my judgment on things like that, which is ridiculous. But yeah. you have this influx of information about the West. You don't have it, say, about a city like Karachi. So for me, there's always a debate of how do you create that and how do you stay true to the city itself without sort of, you know, playing in too much to that aspect of, you know, heaven forbid you exoticize it. Well, there is, that's the exoticization, I think, is the biggest crime that could right. happen. Right? And that's the one thing I was very aware of. I didn't want that Karachi ends up seeing, seeming like a magical realist place or something. And nor did I want, because I, I was very aware of the fact that ideally I want non-Pakistani and non-Karachi readers also reading this book. Um, uh, you know, it should be more accessible that way. But I, I didn't want people to have that reaction where they read it and they're like, oh my God, rickshaws, that's so quaint. Or, right. oh my God, like the donkey on the road pulling a cart at the same time as the Mercedes, like what a juxtaposition. And you, you don't want to play with those cliches Which too much. Which is ridiculous because that's what it's like. That's right, actually it is. what it's like, and, yeah. And, the, but the, but the, and that juxtaposition does exist in real life, but it's also so common that the locals don't think about it. Right. And so I just tried really hard to make it so that the descriptions of Karachi were coming from a local point of view, from someone living in Karachi and his eyes. Um, and, and so he's, you know, the things that, for example, he might find weird are things we would also find weird. But if I, if the electricity goes three times in a day, he's not it's bothered. Not, yeah. He's not bothered. And so it's mentioned in a very nonchalant way as well, because, you know, if the character isn't bothered by it, why should the reader have to be bothered by it? Sure. That and that was, that, was, yeah, that, was, that was a very um, conscious decision I made as, as I went through the various edits. Yes. Yeah, that makes, that makes complete sense. It's funny to me when you talk about magic realism, because I remember uh, another Pakistani writer who doesn't write genre fiction, but Bilal Tanvir, who had a book out, I think, a couple of years ago called yes. uh, The Scatter Here is Too Great which right. to me sounds like a genre title, but isn't at all. Um, but I remember Bilal at some point tweeting a picture, he was at a petrol station, of a goat in a rickshaw. Um, and he said, you know, if I put this in one of my books, they'd call it magic realism, they'd call it surrealism. But right, it's exactly. There's a goat yeah. in a rickshaw and there's no one around and it's just sitting there. You know, so <laughs> some of the things that we see, I think we still have to kind of tone down in a weird way. Yeah, there is. There is the reality is more fantastic than you're allowed yeah. to represent in fiction. But I feel like that's true of many things around sure. the world. Um, so I'm willing to kind of give people leeway with that. My biggest gripe is, and that's just a personal thing, is I just get really annoyed by magical realism. I feel like it's such a scapegoat. Um, I'm still unconvinced that you know, Midnight's Children isn't a really good superhero book. Right. So, you know, it works just as well as an X-Men story as it does for what, you know, he's as a magical realist story. So Yeah, it just um, gets him more literary awards when he calls it magic realism. Right, absolutely. And, and, and even with this book, I mean, in theory, you could, you know, you could say, oh, uh, you know, it's a story about jinns and things and the magical realist elements of Islamic mythology. But I very aggressively wanted it to No, it's a genre fiction book. It's, it's, it's just boy meets, you know, finds out he's half this, half that and has to deal with that. Right. Now... Speaking of Karachi, speaking of Pakistan, what's the chance you'll move on from writing about Pakistan or Karachi? How hard is it to stop being labeled a Pakistani writer, a Pakistani comic, a Pakistani? Well, I, look, there's an there's a aspect of it which has taken me a while to kind of come to terms with, which is um, there. As a comedian, for example, because that's where it, for me it comes up a lot, is I, I'm a stand-up comedian. I perform in Australia, which is where I live now. I moved here four years ago. And, you know, they always put Pakistani comedian Samin Shah. And then on my posters uh, for festivals, they put Pakistan. And the reason why they do that is because it, it, it 
makes me stand out compared to other comedians, for example, who aren't from Pakistan or those kind of places. And it kind of gets people in through the door or at least pushes one extra ticket sale. Do I then make it a part of my act? Do I keep referencing the fact that I'm from Pakistan? Not at all. And that's a very you know, important decision I had to think about and how much of Pakistan should enter my show. I used to do a thing where I'd do two minutes you know, up top. I'd open the show with two minutes of just referencing the fact that I'm from Pakistan. And then the show would never deal with that again. Right. Um, and it was, it was very aggressively ignoring the fact that I'm Pakistani. Um, and, and people didn't care. People weren't bothered, I realized. People don't, you know, as if, you're, if you're funny, no one cares where you're from as long as you're funny. And then I realized the same kind of holds true for other things. If you're writing well, they don't care whether the book is, you know, whether you're a Pakistani author or an American author, as long as the book is well written. If Fireboy is badly written, no amount of saying I'm from Pakistan and it's set in Pakistan is going to help sell it. Um, and you know, so there, there is that thing you can't escape it forever. And maybe the need to escape it is our own issues on an individual basis. Um, but at the same time, you know, there, there's, it's just, it's complex because at the same time, when you're in Pakistan and you, you go abroad and you do well, then everyone's like, Oh, he sold out. He went to a, you know, a Western country and he sold out. So there's, there's people back home who have complexes as well about identity and about the nature of identity and, and all those things, they, they'll consider me a sellout. And, and I wrote an autobiography, which was commissioned by an Australian publisher for an Australian audience. And I was very careful not to be disrespectful of Pakistan, but being very accurate in my portrayal of it. Right. And, and people got angry. They're like, oh, you know, Pakistanis got angry. They're like, oh, he's making us look bad. Right. I'm like, you know, do you want me to lie about the reality just for the sake of image? And there is that whole aspect. You're never going to please anyone. <laughs> so I figure you might, as long as I'm happy, I figure that's probably the only battle worth fighting. Right. Now, tell me, though, how that affects your chances at being published and what that journey has been like. I know it's been turbulent. Yeah, it's weird. It's, um, and, and I, this I, is both for the, for the nonfiction and the fiction. Right, absolutely. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in a weird phase right now where, okay, I have a, a nonfiction book out which came out uh, two years ago, which has been nominated for multiple awards. It just got no- nominated for a third award for um, best, um, uh, best uh, new writer in Australia, basically. And, uh, and that's pretty great. And the sales numbers have been fantastic. I have the second book out, which is Fireboy. I have a third book out, which is coming out, which I'm, I'm just now signing the contract on. And and I can't get an agent. Every agent I ever showed any of my books to would always be like, they'd say, oh, the writing is great, but we're not sure we can sell it. Right. Or they'd say the writing is great, but we, we, we don't think anything that's genre fiction from Pakistan can sell. That was, that was the thing I heard in Fireboy a lot, that, oh, we love it, but you know, people only want literary fiction from Pakistan and, and, and India because they're only used to Mohammad Hanif, Mohsen Hamid, and Salman Rushdie and all these people. They don't know, they don't want YA horror stories. Um, and so that, and, and that was a weird kind of realization to me where there is an odd pigeonhole that's hap- that exists in the publishing world where if I had, if I had labeled this book a, a magical realist you know, journey through the inner psyche of Pakistan, then it would have sold better to a publisher and had less trouble finding an agent. But, but yeah, it doesn't happen for some reason. And, and I don't know what the, you know, at, at the heart of it, I don't know whether it's just that maybe I'm overestimating my the quality of my work and the agents and publish and the agents at least because the publishers seem to like it, but the agents don't. But uh, at the same time, I'm also complaining about something which is trivial. If you think about it, that I've been lucky enough to get all these books out there 
um, on my own and I'm not giving 20% away to anyone. So, you know, what am I whinging about? Yeah, but it's interesting to me because I see this a lot. There's a lot of literature coming out of Pakistan, but the stuff that is getting picked up internationally and noticed more and more is, uh, as you've said, literary fiction for lack of a better term. Right, absolutely. I mean, we have, you know, um, Omar Shahid who wrote thrillers. They've only been published, I mean, they're the least thrillers, essentially, but they've only been published mm-hmm. in India. He can't get a publisher elsewhere. There are a bunch of other people I can think of whose work is as good, if not better, than a lot of stuff that's being published, you know, in the West that right. have the same issue. And that interests me because a lot of people, I feel, are interested in genre stuff coming out of, say, the subcontinent, again, for lack mm-hmm, of a better term, mm-hmm. or, um, you know, and I see this because having put together the Apex book of world fiction, there's a lot of stuff out there that's fantastic, but it's, it is a hard market to break into. And it does seem like you need to do something like, I mean, does it seem like that to you? You need to go to Clarion, you need to get in on the Western sort of bandwagon in some way. I, I did a thing which was sneaky, and I just did it as a test. And if I'd stuck with it, I'd probably right now have been a, a New York Times story or something, but I just couldn't at bring myself to At least a BuzzFeed article, something. Yeah, at least a BuzzFeed article. Uh, what I did was, after my thousandth rejection from an agent... I took the exact same book and I sent it to um, the, uh, one of the bigger agencies, literary agencies, to a different agent within that agency. I changed the my profile. The agency that had already rejected you. That, that's right, um, through another one of their, their agents. And, and so um, I changed my profile in, the, in that, uh, the bio portion. The book was described the same. Everything was the same. Instead of Samisha as a comedian and writer from Pakistan, who's, you know, all of that, it became, um, I, I can't even remember. I gave myself a Western name and I said, I'm a journalist who spent time in Pakistan. And this is the book that I've written. And that was the only agent who expressed an interest in, in buying the book. The only agent who, in repping the book, sorry. And, and then I wrote back and said, actually, I, this is what the, the truth of the matter is. And I'm sorry I lied to you, but I just wanted to make a point to myself that this wasn't just in my head. And they weren't thrilled about that. And, and I think I pretty sure. much burned a bridge there as well. But, it's, uh, but it was an experiment which kind of confirmed my suspicions. There's that, um, I meet a lot, a lot of other immigrants in Australia who are have Muslim names, for example, and they always say that when they apply for a job, they anglicize their names so that they can get in through the door. Uh, if their which name is, is which is very sad, but the fact that it also exists in the literary world is depressing because for yeah. me, this is a world that should really just be a meritocracy. There's right. nothing to be gained from it not being a meritocracy, and the fact that um, you know my my color and my nationality play a bigger part in me getting published is is very upsetting indeed but at the same time every publisher reje- um, you know every sorry agent rejected it and every um, I only spoke to two major publishers they both said they loved it but they couldn't find a market for it they thought I picked up a random niche publisher who found me on Twitter because I was complaining and and you know our first orders are better than any of us could have imagined so the book has legs and I'm right. proud to say that I'm vindicated this one time which is rare in life <laughs> Now, I know you've had a fairly varied career. Our paths have crossed uh, when you worked in advertising and I, I voiced many uh, commercials right. written by your agency. <laughs> yeah. But you, you were in advertising in Pakistan for years, uh, a place, of course, I know to be the advertising world itself to be stranger than uh, a, a great deal of urban fantasy fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How does someone who wants to be writing fiction, genre fiction, survive in a world of corporate advertising? 
a lot of self-loathing, a lot of questioning your life choices. I basically, I, I was in advertising for three years, then I left it and I became a journalist for four, almost five years. And and when I left advertising, I left a, a very good salary in a great position and got bumped all the way down to like entry-level assistant producer in a news channel that hadn't even launched yet um, because I needed to do that to stay sane. I ended up going back to advertising in the end because I had a daughter and I needed to kind of earn more money so there's you know food on the table. And the three years I was in advertising that time were very difficult for me in terms of I hated every moment I was in the office. It's not a, a job that is emotionally rewarding in any way. Um, and there are many people who do advertising and, and work in advertising and, and, and everything. And, and I'm sure they have their reasons for doing it. But I really dislike that industry as a whole and, and most of the people involved in it. Um, I've seen some horrendous people do horrendous things there. Uh, so yeah, I'd much, I wasn't happy in it. I, and I think that not being in advertising, the first time I kind of left it and came to Australia and I realized I didn't have that around my neck anymore is why books started kind of coming out of me because all that energy I was wasting writing copy for, you know, Nokia's failed phones is energy I, I used better in something else in making something for myself. Now, speaking of which, let's talk a little bit about uh, writing process because you write short fiction too and plenty yes. of other stuff, whether it's journalism or comedy. Um, do you approach it all the same way with panic? Because uh, <laughs> that's so, how I approach everything, you know. <laughs> I'll tell you what, the panic starts going away um, when the paychecks become a necessity. So right. there is that aspect to it. Every project is, I've been very lucky. I, I do very different projects, very varied at any given point in time. So I'll be writing a radio documentary script and uh, two columns for a newspaper and a magazine article and a short story and a novel. You know, like at the same time, I'll be working on different things. Um, each one is equally intimidating. And every, there's that great Neil Gaiman, I think it was Neil Gaiman's quote where he says, you, you never learn how to write a book. You only learn how to write the book you're writing. And that same kind of holds true, I think, for all the other mediums within which you write. Um, the biggest lesson for me, I think, honestly, was just do your job. 2,000 words a day. Don't wait for the muse. Don't wait for the environment to be right and the sun to come out from behind a cloud and, and, and the cup of coffee to be perfectly heated. Just sit down. You have 2,000 words a day to write and just write them. And, and that may, I may, had the realization a few years ago and it really changed my productivity, my, my efficiency and, my, and the quality of my writing, actually, because it just meant that I was writing a lot more. Um, even now, some days there'll be days when I don't have anything to write because I've finished all the projects and done, reached the deadlines. And I'll, I'll write a short story just for myself that I'll never sell to anyone and bung it up on Medium or something just so I'm in the practice of constantly writing. Because it is a muscle, as we all know. Yeah, absolutely. You get better as you write. And, you, and, and there are tricks that you learn and tips that you can kind of teach yourself on how to improve things and how to edit yourself better. Um, I think that's the bigger thing. I think anyone can write, but learning to edit is where the real challenge is. Um, and I've gotten much better at that than, you know, when I wrote Fireboy, for example, for the first time three and a half, or almost four years ago now, uh, the first draft versus a first draft of something I do now, very different because I'm editing in my head a lot better than I was back then. Back then I was like, just anything that, any word that would come up would get down, put down on the, the page. Now, you know, I go through the first four words before I settle on the fifth one. Now, how hard was it to avoid putting comedy in Fireboy? I'm not suggesting it doesn't have humor because it does. Yeah. But of course, it's not a comic novel and you are a stand-up comic. 
It's um, it was pretty easy to do that. I I get the comedy fix stuff out of my system in other places. Um, so for me, like if I feel like telling a joke, I can get up on stage. I can write a satirical column for for someone, or or I can you know do do. There are other outlets for it. So you know, I I like, for example, the writers that I like and the writers I grew up reading, like even like someone like Stephen King. There is comedy in their books, but the books are serious. Um. And, and, and that tone is something that I really enjoy a great deal. So even with Fireboy, I, there are, you know, moments of humor here and there kind of scattered throughout the book. But largely, it's a fairly serious affair. And um, I found that a lot more refreshing to do than forcing myself to put a joke in after every two to three sentences, which can, kind of gets tiresome for, for the writer, at least. And I'm sure for the reader as well, if, if it's not done well enough. Now, I have a couple of questions off Twitter. Aditi asks, how long did it take you to prepare The Beginner's Guide to Pakistan, which, as you just mentioned, uh, was, I think it was the radio documentary you were just mentioning, that you wrote and presented for BBC Radio 4? Yeah, I did that one last year. Um, it was it, it, uh, it, yeah, it was a two-part radio documentary series, half an hour each, and we basically covered the entire socio-political history of Pakistan while also making it a comedy. Um, I got lucky in doing that because I, I, I had a very good producer, uh, which is this guy named Ed Morish um, in BBC. And he, he's got a lot of experience doing radio comedy. But the other thing is I'm, I'm a structuralist. I obsess over the structure of writing. Um, I, when I read a book, when I, when, I, when I watch a TV show, I'm always focusing on how they structure everything. And one of the things I kind of learned was I used to watch the John Oliver um, show last week tonight and uh, and I listened to a lot of like you know comedy satire news political satire kind of comedy, and I realized there's a structure that that works very well within that, which is nuggets of um, extremely serious and and potent information, and you know alleviated with comedic analogies regularly, uh, you know every thirty five to forty seconds, and th- there's that kind of structure. If you watch the Daily Show, or if you watch you know John Oliver's show or something, there's a rhythm to the way that they tell the jokes and then tell the facts between the jokes. And I just kind of, all, I wouldn't say copied that, but yeah, I basically kind of took that structure and applied it. Once I wrote down all the details on Pakistan's history, I applied that structure, worked out where the jokes should sit, then kind of sat down and thought of the best, best jokes I could. And that's how the story kind of became a coherent piece. Um, we you know, worked as a comedy and as an informative experience. But yeah, it's, it's one of those things where, as you describe it, you kind of realize there's this really great saying, which is, um, I think L.B. White said, the, the humorist, that um, you know, di- describing comedy is like dissecting a frog. Um, no one finds it funny and the frog dies of it. And I always feel the same way about, you know, trying talking about this stuff. Now, Aditi also asks what your biggest challenge has been. Don't you dare say it's been working with me. Because <laughs> I think it's up there. No, not at all. Um, my big, honestly, my biggest, the biggest challenge is the rejections. Oh, moving on from them. Well, not or accepting them and realizing you don't have to quit because of them. But like, you know, accepting the body blow of rejection. Um, in because in comedy, I I'm used to the rejection in comedy, right? Like if um. Every now and then I'll have a bad gig or the crowd won't laugh or a joke will fall flat and, and I'm used to that. But writing a book is very different. Writing a book is you pour so much time and effort into this and all you are is largely, you know, at least for the first few drafts, powered by self-belief. 
no one else knows whether it's going to work or not. You have to believe it will work. And when you get that first rejection from a publisher or an agent, the idea that this thing that you've crafted carefully, this precious little you know, external element of you that you're not putting out in the universe has got smacked down hard by someone who said, yeah, not for me, um, that really hurts. And kind of coming to terms with the fact that this is going to happen and you just have to deal with it. Um, that was the biggest thing for me. And it's why I, I, it can also be damaging, I feel. Maybe Fireboy should have been put to bed, you know, two years into the rejection, part of rejections. Um, but at the same time, me not accepting the fact that it is bad and then constantly going back and rewriting it and rewriting and reworking it until, until I was more and more confident in it is probably why it's, it's, it's a physical thing today. So, yeah, it, it, that was definitely the one which it's still... I still wince when I think about those first few emails coming back. Because you, you get the email in your mailbox. And you're like, oh, my God, this top agent has responded so quickly. And then they're like, nope. And you're like, ah, that, that sucks. Now, the next question from Twitter comes from Kamla Shamsi, who, of course, is, is, is probably Pakistan's biggest export outside of mangoes. Right, absolutely. She's written, said, yeah. <laughs> she's written more books than, than there are mangoes in the world. And, that's, and Kamala's that's actually, true, she, <laughs> Kamala's I, been wonderful and she gave me a great uh, uh, quote for the book as well. So, yeah, yeah she's, she's huge... loved your book. I know that. So she asked a burning question. Oh, uh, where do you stand on the spelling of Jinn? D-G-I-N-N or... Oh, I got that all wrong. D-J-I-N-N. D-J-I-N-N. Look at that. I can't even spell it. D-J-I-N-N or J-I-N-N. I say as long as no one says genie in a bottle, we're golden. Right. I, yeah, a, no genies. Um, I and like, hopefully not a G either. I, look, here's the thing. With the J-I-N-N and the, and the D is silent when you say No one says Dijin. Right. You know, it's just Jin. And, it's, and no one spells it D-J-I-N-N, by the way, anywhere I, like, that no, I can find do. anymore. No, they do. They do. They, like, I, I found it in one or two places, but largely on the internet and in books and stuff, it's mostly this. I just felt like putting that extra D there w- exoticized it a little bit. It kind of it made it separate from Genies and Aladdin's Jinn and, and, you know, the, the, the you know, Robin Williams and, and all of that kind of thing. Sure. I'm still on the fence about it, I have to admit. Because I think it technically the, the correct word in English is D-J-I-N-N. I would spell it J-I-N-N. But then right. uh, there would be publishers who would disagree with me. Yeah, absolutely. Perhaps. And even with this one, my publisher repeatedly asked me, are you sure with the D? Like, why with the D? And, I, and, and I, it got to the point where I was like, look, just, just it's what I want to do. You've got to trust me. It's what I want to do. And maybe it'll be distracting for the, for the reader. Maybe not. I don't know. But it just, it's important to me. <laughs> and and right. even I can't fully articulate why. All right. So, Fireboy is out from Fantastica, I believe. That's uh, right. You've yes. broken it into two. Yes. Um, that was, was the it? original intention. It originally was written as one novel. Um, and what happened was that it was, it was a 120, maybe 130,000 word novel. And I was, and at one point after, I think the billionth rejection from a publisher and agent and, and agents, I, I sat down and I was like, maybe the problem is that it's just, they, they, they're like, look, he's from Pakistan. He's writing genre fiction. It's, it's, um, it's YA, but it's also on the more on the A side of a YA. Uh, there's a lot of things happening in the book, and it's gigantic. Like, these are just too many issues. I was like, okay, what's the one thing I can maybe help them with to gi- digest it better? And so I just, I just slice it in half. And, um, and, 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 you know, the first, and Fantastic asked for it the next day, and I sent that to them, and they didn't seem to complain. Um, I'm not sure it was the best decision, 
a lot of readers have said that, you know, they feel like the book should have had more of a cohesive ending. But at the same time, I kind of like the way, I like the way TV shows are structured. They have a season and then they have a second season and a third season. And sometimes um, on a good show, they don't have a, a neat wrap up at the end of every season. They end the season on a cliffhanger. And I like the idea of this book ending on a cliffhanger in book one and and if you and you know me it's not it's not me tricking you into coming back for book two it's just I have more story to tell and if they would let me tell it in one book I would have but I think they wanted it you know you know I think you know the publishing world seemed to be more content or seemed to be happier with with two books and so I I, I turned into two books and and it's going to give me a chance to kind of flesh out the second half of the book as well which I I you know I'm happier that I have that now because I, there are changes I want to make in it and, and, I, and ideas I have for it that I get to still play around with, uh, which, which is exciting. When does the second part go out? Um, the second part, in theory, comes out in December. Uh, so basically, I think Fantastica is waiting to see how, this, how part one does and they seem pretty happy with part one and they've asked me when I can give them a draft of, of part two. I, I just am now finishing... Uh, uh, a rough edit of part two and I'm kind of noting all the areas I want to make additions and make some changes I want to add maybe 10,000 words to it and then wrap it up um, and turn it in and uh, and then yeah and then Fireboy and you know and the original title for the book was Fireboy Earthboy so and now you know now there are two books Fireboy and then Earthboy alright so what's the uh, you can't talk about the next book yet I'm guessing well, I mean, basically, I, I don't want to give away spoilers. That's the only thing. I, I can tell you that the goal is to have it out by December. Um, worst case, maybe January or so. And um, it does, it, it, is, it is a two-parter. I'm not going to trick you into and At the end of part two, you'll be like, well, what the hell? Now I have to read part five and seven, 10, 13. No, this is two-parter. It's a duology. And, um, and it wraps up all the, the th- plot threads. And things get far, far more intense and far worse before they get better for anyone and everyone before it wraps up. And, and if you like Islamic mythology, then part two is where Dajjal comes into play. And, and if you know anything about Islamic mythology, that's a great tease right there. <laughs> now, speaking of part five and six and 13 and 700, I know you're a huge Game of Thrones fan. Uh, uh, where, are you, where do you stand on what's going on right now? You know, I'm fine with it. I, I, I actually get you angry with people. You made your peace, have you? I made my peace with it. When I, you know, when I first wrote this book, I made, I made my peace with all other writers taking as long as they take because... Right. Here's, here's how I, I see it. The TV show will finish next season. And, and who watches Sopranos still? Sopranos was one of the greatest TV shows of all time. The Wire, one of the greatest TV. We all love it. We all talk about it. We all quote about it, quote from it. And all we do at most is we go on YouTube and rewatch a clip. Anya, my daughter, who's seven years old right now, is not going to watch Sopranos. You know, she's not going to. She's going to have other things to watch. Whereas we still read Lord of the Rings. George R. R. Martin has to think about the, the legacy of his books. And he has to think about you know, the, the, the kid who 40, 50 years from now is going to pick up the book and read it. And I think he'd much rather have a good book for that kid to read than a bad book rushed out because he had deadlines to meet or a TV show breathing down his neck. And writing isn't easy. And writing is even tougher when you've got the whole world yelling at you to write it and and, you know, the TV show kind of going off its own direction and all that. And I can't even imagine what he goes through when he sits down to write on a yeah. daily basis. Um, and how much of that is just self-doubt and, and anger at himself and all those issues. You know, if, um, 
I actually like the idea that we're going to get, you know, two separate storylines. It's almost like we have alternate realities now going sure. on between the Game of Thrones books and the TV show. But as long as he, you know, writes a great book, I don't care how long he takes. I grew up reading the Dark Tower series from Stephen King, where we had to wait a decade as a, as a young boy, you know, between books. And, and I was far more impatient then than I am now. Yeah, I'm with you because, especially since I keep thinking about George R. R. Martin's basically just a really nice guy. He's yeah. just, he's a he's a sweet home, he's a sweet man. I mean, I, I I want to cut him some slack. I think I just I, I I I get genuinely angry. We've got I've got friends on Twitter who like every time George R. R. Martin posts anything, they're like, write your goddamn book, and I'm like, you yelling at him yeah. like that? It's not gonna make him want to write it. it you know human nature. He's gonna say, you, I'm not writing it. I'm gonna go out and eat some food. You know, like that's how what human nature is like. If you genuinely love the book so much then let him write it as, you know, at the pace he does. Because if he comes out with a bad book, then they'll really be angry. All right, so what's next for you? Uh, next is, I basically, I think, I've, I have to finish this book right now, which is um, the sequel to Fireboy, the second half of Fireboy. And um, I'm probably going to be publishing a nonfiction book, which is just a look at um, Islam in Australia. I did a radio documentary series, a five-part series for um, ABC Radio National, the national kind of broadcaster here on on the on the Islamic community in Australia and and the issues therein and you know and from within and without and so I'm turning that into a book and then who knows who knows I don't plan things anymore I just kind of wing it and if it works out it works out if it doesn't I'll try something else. All right, so we'll see what happens with Fireboy. Yeah, we will. We will. We've got um, um, sales are good and people are buying it and it's scary putting it out into the world after spending so time, so much time with it. Um, but, you know, now it's um, it's about moving on to the next part. And I'm trying to let go of my of my daddy issues with the first part. All right. Well, you do that and we'll uh, hopefully speak to you when the uh, next book is out. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>